0: both from educational standpoint, as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. For this episode of the podcast, my guest today is Mike Balaban. Mike is a longtime executive in the Washington, D.C. area, and a good friend of mine who I've known since he joined Low Enterprises about 25 years ago. Mike has been a, an architect and then involved into going through his schooling at Wharton and got into the real estate sector and was recruited there by Frank Kahn of Washington Real Estate Investment Trust to be an acquisitions analyst here in the mid-1980s. And then he moved from there over to Low Enterprises in the mid-1990s and started acquiring properties and developing and developed many major projects in the Washington area, including City Vista, 601 New York New Jersey Avenue, the redevelopment of the Washington Hilton, the Hepburn project, apartment project, involved also in the Ampere at Dupont Circle, and a subsequent position at SB Urban. Mike's career is uh, wide ranging, and he talks about his philosophies and thought processes that developed from his childhood in Philadelphia through his experience as an architect into the real estate investment and development business here in Washington. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this far-ranging conversation with Mike Balaban. Welcome, Mike, to the podcast. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing today. And we will then follow that up with your background, uh, starting with your uh, where you grew up and your little bit of life history up through college and then on into your beginning of your career how your career evolved, then talk a little bit about the market, and then a little bit about uh, some ideas and thoughts for people uh, listening at the end here with some some long-term thinking. But I wanted to start a little bit about uh, what's going on today in your life, as well as what's happening around us and how that influences your thinking, as you're thinking about your
1: next steps. John, I'm delighted to be with you. And one of the great things, you get to be my age and you hear a question and you respond to it in the way that you're inclined as opposed to uh, necessarily the way it's been asked because the broad thrust of the experience is that uh, that's perhaps what's most helpful. So where I am today is the same place I've been in a general way for now a 40-year career, which is looking for the optimizing way to combine uh, the things that I know and want to do with uh, the search for an overlap with stakeholders for whom those things can be done uh, productively in an aligned interest kind of way. I started out as an architect, I was trained as an architect and began in the practice of architecture. After a couple of years of practicing architecture, I was hired by a firm, a user for whom I'd done a very large corporate interiors project uh, as the project architect. I left the practice of architecture and essentially started the migration towards the uh, development business. I was an architect for Ad Inc in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I was hired by New England Life, which was the developer of a satellite corporate facility in Burlington, Mass. And uh, from that beachhead at New England Life, I began the migration towards the real estate business through the project management business, which is most of what I did out of the facilities department at New England Life. From that, I co-founded a a development services consulting firm, um, which I participated in running for a handful of years until I went back to business school. When I left business school in Philadelphia, I came to Philadelphia and joined as the acquisitions officer Washington Real Estate Investment Trust, which was already in 1988, more than 25 years old. It had been one of the very first real estate investment trusts. And I was the acquisitions officer and did some special projects for RIT for a half a dozen years working cheek by jowl with Frank Kahn, who founded that firm, and we'll probably come back at some point and talk a little further about it. Frank, because that was a really interesting. I may be the person who worked closely, most closely with him for the longest and lived to tell about it. And um, uh, I did a project, I acquired a property for RIT, which had been redeveloped by Low Enterprises. So, in the process of doing that, I became acquainted with the investment management business that Lowe had set up uh, several years previously in Los Angeles. And I joined Lowe Enterprises here in 1994 as an acquisitions officer. And within a couple of years, in collaboration with other people who had already been on the ground here, was running the regional business for Lowe Enterprises, which I did for almost 20 years. And at the end of those 20 years, and we'll definitely come back and talk about some of the very interesting and very significant projects and relationships that uh, mark those 20 years, I left the firm to co-found a firm called SB Urban, which was specifically exclusively dedicated to a very differentiated investment program, which was uh, somewhat oversimplified, essentially small unit rental apartments furnished, uh, available for the short term in building, yep. specifically catering to that yep. profile of a customer, which was very specialized, but conducive to acquiring really prime, real property in wonderful urban infill locations and have done a handful of things that have come out of that business, including in my, in recent years, have worked on a couple of rather differentiated, but condominium projects for J Street one of which was a very large luxury unit project, and one of which was a rather small unit first-time homebuyer project, Uh, the first of those in DuPont Circle and the latter of those in uh, Noma. So I've migrated from those first years doing design projects for Ad Inc. in Boston to acting as a principal on development projects and having participated in lots of the things that have made this a great market over those years. And I'm continuing to build on those experiences and couldn't have a more dynamic metro in which to do it and very much looking forward to the next things.
0: Great. So, Mike, before we get into talking about your origin story basically going back to your youth etc tell us a little bit about um, your perspective today based on the current situation over the last 30 60 days with this growth of this virus and how it's affected the marketplace and how you see yourself fitting into this situation currently and going forward and how you think it's going to come out you know in your view over the next say six months or so how we're going to emerge from this and how we're going to how this is going to affect you and how you see things in the Washington DC area as far as uh, sure, sure. I mean
1: it's, it's what it all comes down to is what are we and what is one going to do next and when one goes back to my answer to that first question I, I mean during those interludes there have been multiple Junctures at which the world seemed pretty busted. It seemed pretty busted in 1975 when I got out of architecture school. It seemed pretty busted in 1988 when I came to Washington coming out of business school. The fallout from the TRA-86 crash was very... Beyond poignant, it was becoming powerful and it lasted for a half a dozen years. When I was at RIT, there was a period in which we acquired what I think was the only institutional scale investment in Northern Virginia for the quarter. Is that 1990, 91? That was in about 90 or 91. Bill right. K was the. Yes. Uh, Investment yes. sales broker for seventy seven hundred Leesburg Park, and that market was busted.
2: Yes, it I was. came
1: to town and drove around for a couple years on behalf of RIT, looking at the same inventory because no new inventory right. was being introduced. Right, right, and that was a mess. And certainly, when one thinks back as relatively recently. To the situation that perhaps reminds lots of observers as most nearly resembling this situation. 9 11 was a very desperate, difficult, perplexing, unhappy time. And it was similar to this one in a certain way because it was due to exogenous circumstances that really had nothing to do with the real estate markets, but it didn't produce a meaningful real estate crash, really. That that saved itself for half a dozen years later. And there was obviously a long time there when things were just completely interrupted. And so whether this will produce an interruption of the character and magnitude of any of those who knows, but certainly the basic fundamental principles of the business have on the one hand evolved enormously, but on the other hand stayed the same. And uh, the trends that are in place, uh, demographically, urbanistically, capital stack-wise, all those trends that have been playing out in the last handful of years, in which uh, my various businesses have participated in a very dynamic way, those trends, I think, for the most part, are going to turn out to be more powerful than this interruption. So, on the one hand, I think it's entirely reasonable to speculate when it will be that people will get back on the metro. An entirely unfathomable situation to think about what it would be like to get on a metro today. I mean, people are afraid to go into the CVS, let alone to get onto the metro. But there's no question in my mind that the forces, the economic and urban forces that put people on those metro trains are powerful enough that it's going to become a dynamic demand driver again. It's just a question of exactly when. And under exactly what circumstances and how much pain is going to be lived through meanwhile. So big picture wise, all the kinds of properties with which I've been associated and the projects which I've uh, led and the project teams that I've assembled over the years, all those kinds of resources, I'm entirely confident are going to come to bear again. And there are going to be adjustments, but those market settings are going to be ones in which it's going to be productive and profitable to be positioned going forward, just as it's turned out to be through all those interruptions over all those many years prior. So I hope that's responsive to your question. And of course, I'd be glad to talk about any of the specifics. Certainly, that I think may be helpful. It sounds as if you
0: think that this is a blip that's kind of a, it's a unique one, but it will be recovered It will recover in a similar way than the other blips in that they're not going to be secular changes in your mind.
1: Well, I, I, yeah, I personally wouldn't use the word blip. I know what you mean. Uh, I wouldn't use the word blip because I think it, minimizes the potential difficulty and, and almost sounds glib. I mean, these are really serious things. People are going to lose money, and some people are going to lose their livelihoods, and some people, God bless them, sadly, are going to lose their lives. And I don't think it's going to feel like a blip, but I do think that the long term trend line is one to which we will return and that those who have stayed focused on the kinds of situation that ha- situations that have produced profitable positions in the past are going to be rewarded by finding them profitable yeah. Well, again
0: yeah the the two that that come to mind for me is 1991, 1990, 91 and 2007, eight, nine, as to being the, probably the most dramatic ones in our, in the real estate sector in my career, at least.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with the, that. I think, and I think the big difference between call it 91, because it really played out from 88 through 95. Yes. And 2007 it's hard to pick when it began and when it ended but let's say 2007 was the heart of it the, the biggest difference from my perspective between those two is that between them the real estate business and the real estate markets became entirely differently capitalized so so the persons and the parties who were literally killed in 91, were in many cases people. They were individuals and they were groups of partners who were just shattered financially and in ways much deeper than financially because their lives and their investments and their properties were all tied up. And by 2005 or 2007 or 2008, for the most part, a huge transition had occurred and the parties who were hard hit were in many cases not individuals anymore. They were various forms of pools of capital and there were a couple of really important things about that transition, one of which is that the shattered lives syndrome that had prevailed earlier uh, did not prevail in quite the same way. And the other is that those parties uh, who were impacted by those downturning events, in many cases, had a lot more capital resilience. And I think that that trend has powerfully continued from 2005 out here through 2020 and the various structures and forms of resilience that are afforded to the ownerships of individual properties have become that much more capable of supporting Maintaining one's position. And I think that's going to be a really important and helpful thing as we work these things through. I mean, people aren't paying their rent, and obviously, bars aren't paying their mortgages, and guarantors of those mortgages are being called on their bond obligations. But the levels of resilience that have been institutionally structured into those situations is quite remarkable.
0: It's considerably much more than the 1990s, that's for sure. And much more. the institutional marketplace has evolved considerably with the evolution of the REIT industry, as well as ca- the private equity markets. So you have much, much more robust equity in the marketplace than you had in the early 90s. And, and that all came out. But then, of course, the institutional breakdown of CMBS and other things in the 2007-8 market time frame restructured that industry a bit so what's in my mind and correct me if i'm wrong mike but i think that the leverage situation is much better than it was in either of those periods of time leading into this and that i think has helped the idea of resilience perhaps going through what we're going through now
1: i mean the very the very fact that some lenders And perhaps some very significant percentage of lenders are actively considering staying with new loans that are close to closing, but not yet ready to close. The very fact that those lenders would be considering doing that, now, whether they'll actually be able to do it in all the cases in which they're contemplating doing it, who knows? But they're certainly trying to stay in position for their prospective borrowers. Mm -hmm. And that bespeaks a a level of resilience that goes back to my answer to your question. It's not going to be a blip, but the resilience that's been introduced in support of a continuation of the powerful demographic and market trends that we've experienced means, from my perspective, that it's likely that these trends will continue and that the transition within the densest urban areas to a more dynamically residentially supported fabric I think that's going to continue. And the transition to office uses, I think this is worthy of a lot of detailed introspection, and I'm sure it's going to receive it going forward from here. But the trend towards more flexible office uses and whether one thinks of it as co-working and whether it comes out of this still being called co-working and whether the co-working in whatever form uh, survives is by the same kind of operator party uh, to which it has mm-hmm. moved in the last handful of years. Who knows? Yep. But the trend to smaller amounts of office space per person, although they are challenged by these current situations, because people are going to need to be more careful about being physically as close to each other as has become common. I believe that fundamentally the best word for that is challenged, as opposed to threatened. I don't think those trends are going to go away because the economic drivers of those changes in space use are so powerful. For instance, just to put it all in context, if one goes back and thinks about the way all kinds of people speculated about what they called office hoteling, 10 and 15 years ago and if we think about the way people speculated about what they called e-tailing 10 and 15 years ago the lives of these space users have been completely transformed and leveraged by technologies that weren't even imagined then And so the world's not going to go backwards. Those things have been put in place for really, really good uh, reasons. And the observers of the markets and the practitioners who can respond to them as they evolve in response to these changes are going to be the ones who have the greatest opportunity as we come out of this.
0: Great, Mike. Appreciate
1: that perspective. So let's let's
0: transition back to uh, your origins a little bit, where you grew up, where you're from, and uh, some of the influences of your of your youth.
1: My attitude about a lot of these things, John, my attitudes uh, were influenced by the fact that I, I grew up in an ethnic neighborhood in Philadelphia. And it doesn't really matter what ethnic group it was. It happened to be a Jewish neighborhood, but it could have been a Catholic neighborhood, and it could have been a Ukrainian neighborhood, and it could have been an Italian neighborhood in Philadelphia at that time. My neighborhood was about 112% Jewish. Everybody where I lived came from A very similar background. In my particular elementary school class, we had two non-Jewish kids, Rosemary and Donald, and it was so extraordinary for the people in our neighborhood to think about what Christians experienced that we went to Donald Nybauer's house every Christmas to see his Christmas tree because none of us otherwise saw a Christmas tree. (laughs) So the world in those days uh, and the urban world, this was a a neighborhood that at the time was thought of as vaguely suburban. But it was, in fact, as we consider it today, it was rather urban. It was an immediate post-war built neighborhood. And most of the uh, neighborhoods in Philadelphia were really quite closed. And if one thinks about the fact that Jews couldn't get jobs as lawyers and, I mean, women worked outside the home hardly ever. So the, the world was one in which people and groups of people got compartmentalized very aggressively, very rigorously. And I personally... Somewhere way back there in my time in Oxford Circle uh, in what is now called the Bustleton neighborhood in Philadelphia, I developed the view and realized that I wanted to live in circumstances and in places where there were all kinds of people who did all kinds of things. And it was an early intuitive notion on my part about diversity that, of course, was a word that was never used then. But as I became a practitioner and became exposed to all kinds of uh, real estate and business situations, in retrospect, I was really interested in participating in, and where I could, furthering what we now call diversity. And one of the best ways for me to do that as a practitioner has been to be associated with projects that are really close to Metro that are dynamically animated by Mm -hmm. multiple uses and that by their very character are diverse. And uh, that's of course a, Topic and a trend that's going to continue to play out for many years, but it has influenced me tremendously as I've formed my patterns of doing business. So, uh, what did your father do, Mike? My father was a, a financial executive, he was a controller for a company that was based in Allentown, Pennsylvania, that manufactured. Vinyl floor coverings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My father worked for the Sandura Corporation in Allentown. Well, I was born in Allentown and moved to Philadelphia when his company opened an office in Philadelphia from which it uh, focused on expanding its business. I remember in the 50s that the Montreal. For the Sandura Corporation was 60 by 60. They wanted to get to $60 million in revenues by 1960. (laughs) And that's what my father did. And he had a little bit of college. We think about how good we got it in the lives that we enjoy now. My old man flew B 17s over Normandy and Germany. Really? 44 and 45. He was born in 22. And by 44, he was a pilot Uh flying B-17s. A flying fortress. And to this day, if you were to ask, certainly if you were to ask me, and I think if you were to ask most people who knew him what killed him, he died of a heart attack at 49. I would say those missions over... Normandy and Germany killed them. And they just never, never emotionally got beyond literally the torture of dropping those bombs, knowing because they flew dead reckoning. They had no idea exactly where they were. So literally the torture of dropping bombs on uh, landscapes that they knew included women and children. Innocent people, yeah. Innocent Mm. people of all kinds. It was a terrible thing to have to do and to have to live through, and God bless them that they were there to do it, but we got it pretty good in uh, the United States of America in 2020, that's for sure. Do you have any uh, siblings, and what what are their influences in the family there? I I have two siblings. We're spread all around the world. One of them lives in London and one of them lives in uh, Oklahoma City. (laughs) So they, in their own way, uh, sought the opportunity, as was pretty common at the time, I think, to move beyond the strictures of those very tightly siloed neighborhoods in which we all grew up. Sure. Sure. Want to see the world, and in their way, they've gone out and done it too. So you went on to Kenyon College from there. Went Uh, to Kenyon College; it was the best college furthest away from Philadelphia that I got into, (laughs) and it was a wonderful experience and a great school. And and when I think back on my various educational experiences, I think that at Kenyon I learned to read and write, and that. Harvard at the School of Design, I learned to think about buildings as they sit in the urban landscape and that I became uh, intuitively acquainted with the notion of margin and the way to find the difference between it's all pretty similar. You mm-hmm. people learn things in different ways in sure. retrospect. I wonder if I really got my money's worth out of going to business school, but the fact is that it's a way of making simple the story that it's the gap between your costs and your revenues. It's, it's all it really comes down to. And that's what we thought about for two years at, uh, Wharton a- at the School of Design. Uh, similarly, we thought about a lot of different things, but they could all be boiled down to a couple simple things. My first day in a studio at the School of Design, this is the fall of 1971, I graduated from Kenyon in 1970. Mm -hmm. I was approached by Professor Jersey Zoltan in my studio, who was a big, energetic, extremely empathetic guy who saw me sitting there and could tell that I had no idea what was going on, or what was going to happen to me in seven semesters at the school of design? And he came over to me and he said, Mike, if there's one thing I can tell you, just remember all you got to do is go from the general to the particular and the particular to the general. And that's, <laughs> and that's all you're going to learn here. And really, as a designer, it's a really uh, great way of crystallizing thinking about the design process. That's, that's really all it is. It's taking that's the, interesting. Big, the big picture and sure. imposing it on the details and taking the details and then imposing them on the big picture. And if you do that properly, then you end up with the
0: formulation that works. In many ways, that's a good way of thinking about life in general, too, not just design. So that's interesting how you say it that way. (laughs) So how did your love of real estate germinate? Did it start when you were a youth or did it happen in college? Or what got you into into the real estate game or thinking about it?
1: I had a fabulous... uh, I was a history major at uh, Kenyon, and I had a fabulous architectural history professor named Stephen Wolfe. Kenyon was a very, very small college, a very intimate place. It was not at all uncommon to have dinner at a professor's home, to be the only student at a professor's home for dinner with the professor and his Wife. At that point, it was almost always a wife because the professors were almost always guys. This is a long time ago. And I took a couple of architectural history courses from Steve Wolf, at which I relatively excelled. And in. Steve invited me over to his home one night with his wife, Bliss. They both spoke with uh, rather heavy German accents. And We had some uh, drinks and we had some dinner. And at the end of it, Professor Wolf said to me, Mike, you know, given the interest that you've shown, you really should think about going to architecture school Hmm. because whatever it is that you end up doing, the interest that you've shown in the way these things involving uh, buildings and cities have played out over time, uh, architecture school will position you to do something that you really love at which you'll be able to excel. And I would encourage you to consider it. I was probably a junior at Kenyan at that time. And I did indeed... Consider it and I applied to four great architecture schools and managed to get into two of them and ended up going to Harvard. And it wasn't long after I was out of Harvard and practicing architecture when people I was working with started to observe that I was probably going to leave the design business and go to something else. And at that point, I don't think I thought specifically about, quote unquote, going into the real estate business. And when I did leave the architecture business to go into what was technically the facilities planning business at New England Life, I certainly don't think that I thought to myself, oh, Mike, you like real estate, you're going to end up in the real estate business. I was just really tactically responding to continued search for opportunity within a milieu that I had come to know. Mm -hmm. And it played out over time. So I don't think I could answer that question john with some specific sure it, it rarely it. is
0: <laughs> rarely is specific it's it, just it, yeah. it, it wasn't it,
1: it, it wasn't as if a light bulb went on oh. the light bulb is still going on i'm still trying to get the light bulb to go on every day
2: yeah i get it
1: thinking about yeah. exactly how to uh, pull the pieces together with which one can make contribution
0: so then you went on to wharton and got
1: your mba Yeah, now at Wharton, Wharton, I was well known for two 38s. Some people called me the 38 kid. First of all, I was going to be 38 years old when I graduated, which was then, and I think still is now. That was pretty old for business school. And the other is that I had gotten myself into Wharton, placing in the 38th percentile on the quantitative portion of the GMAT. So Mm -hmm. how I got myself into Wharton in the 38th percentile, I don't know. But in fact, I always thought about quantitative matters uh, kind of visually. So I powered my way through it. But that was a pretty intense experience for me. That was a lot of really smart, really focused, really energetic people, a large percentage of whom were from either Philadelphia or New York. It was a pretty aggressive environment. I I managed at Wharton to become acquainted with Frank Kahn. Frank Kahn was a um, good friend of a professor named Bill Zucker, who ran a big, Really, he was an academic impresario. He brought in all kinds of outside practitioners to teach case studies about the real estate business. And one of those outside people at that time was his old friend Frank Kahn, who would drive up to Philadelphia from Washington and spend a day there every year teaching this case study about writ. And I became really very. Taken by RIT's approach to the Metro DC market at that time, and RIT has explain you know, who RIT is and who Frank Kahn is. One, yeah. Two, so RIT, Washington Real Estate Investment Trust. I believe that RIT was the second REIT formed when the new real estate investment trust regs were. Passed in, I think, 1960. In the early 60s, yes. In the early, early 60s. So by the time I met Frank Kahn in the late 80s, he'd already been working it for what was mostly a retail shareholder base at that time, a lot of moms and pops. And Frank had built a portfolio exclusively in metro D.C. that included apartments, shopping centers, so-called industrial, because it wasn't really industrial. It was a bunch of crappy third-class warehouse buildings. But Mm -hmm. we'll come back to that, because it had a lot to do with Frank's insights and perspectives about being an investor, and also office buildings. Not a single one of the probably 25 or 30 properties that Ritt owned at that time could possibly be construed to be an A property. Most of them were B and B minus properties and some of them were definitely C properties. And that period and observing the extraordinarily profitable success that Frank had generated for his shareholders really focused me on a couple of things which have been very prominent parts of my investment perspective uh, for my career ever since. But one of those was that the real source of profit in the real estate business is some difference between the current quality of the property and the prospective future quality of the property. And the most reliable underpinning of that value opportunity is location. Now, Frank felt very powerfully and I have, in many of my activities since that period, rather disagreed with this priority on his part, but it's hard to argue with the proof in the pudding. Frank believed very powerfully that cheap basis was the most important thing. I think if you were to ask Frank Kahn, what's the most important thing? it positions you for success with a real estate investment, I think he would say, inexpensive basis. He would also talk about the absence of debt. But if you own it cheap, then you can do a lot of great things. I think that my personal perspective, and I think it's been borne out in a lot of great projects and successes on behalf of Very significant financial stakeholders is the most important thing is the locational underpinning to a plan to achieve value by narrowing the gap between the current quality of the property and the prospective quality of the property. I think that if I think of myself as a practitioner, probably the thing that I would disagree most strongly with as an oft-stated maxim. And people always say, you make money on the buy, and you lose money on the buy. In my experience, which is a little different, but still in some ways underpinned in what I saw with RIT, Is that if you buy good property and you have a plan to create value by narrowing the gap between what it is and what it can be, you can make a lot of money. And that's what we did at Low Enterprises over and over again with properties, which in our early years there were relatively small. And in my later years, there were often really very large properties. It was really good property and you paid market price for it, but you had a differentiated plan responsive to the location. You could make a lot of money, not only a lot of money, but with a really Superior risk-adjusted return. Oh. What's interesting, Mike, is thinking about your architectural
0: background, transitioning to an acquisitions position with with a guy who looked at things to buy the cheapest, you know, lowest cost, lowest basis project, and basically operate it very, very miserly. Yes, and, and to to you know, basically make it. Squeeze every nickel out of a deal, as opposed to creating value beyond what's there, yeah. is an interesting uh, evolution for you. They're
1: Definitely. Definitely. Thinking- and I would say that if I try to reconstruct exactly what it is that Frank Conn saw in me when he hired me out of Wharton in 1988, I think it goes back to what Steve Bliss, my architectural history professor, communicated to me is that if you're well-educated, and as Jersey Zoltan said, if you know how to go from the general to the particular and the particular to the general, you can get (laughs) stuff done. And I think that in his way, Frank, miserable, bottom line, son of a bitch that he was, saw that in me and saw the overlapping aspiration On my part, my aspirations personally and within the real estate business were not the same as his, but they definitely did overlap. Because what Frank did was he bought buildings that were crappy, but the locations usually had significant fundamental qualities. Mm -hmm. And he prided himself on putting pictures of these fairly crappy buildings on the front of the writ annual report and describing to the shareholders at the annual meeting how cheap these buildings were. Now, ultimately, his successors at RIT who have, I think, typically been really capable, really skilled, really thoughtful, really diligent executives, have consistently trended towards minimizing the importance of the cheap buy and more nearly maximizing the opportunity from the investment plan.
0: A completely different philosophy. They're
1: still very sensitive to basis. Yeah. Um, I think appropriately so. But that plan worked great with a mean old miserable son of a bitch like Frank at the helm, hand on the tiller all day, every day. But translating that into a portfolio plan for an evolving market, I think is something uh, to which his successors have transitioned very effectively. And when I say Frank was a mean old miserable son of a bitch, there are very few people I've worked with in the real estate business, very few, of whom I would say that. And I think it's one of the great things about business, particularly in metro D.C., my life in the years I've been in business in Metro DC has been filled with smart, aggressive, ambitious people, a very significant percentage of whom have been really nice people. Mm-hmm. I just don't think, and it's one of the great things about our business, along with the additional resilience. From the trends in the capital stack we were talking about earlier. I just don't think that in order to make a lot of money and to do really well and to do good in this market, you need to treat people badly or make deals in a way that hurts other people. And Frank came from a school. Those guys, uh, you know, I don't know if uh, I never talked anything personally with Frank. He was probably about the same age as my then late father. But those guys had fought the war and they'd been through the depression and they busted out of those ethnic straitjackets themselves. And they were tough. And Frank was tough. And Frank thought, and more than thought, he believed it was every ounce of his being, he believed that if you bought cheap and you made sure that the other guy felt some pain, that was a great way to position yourself for success. So, zero
0: zero sum thinking.
1: Yeah, so happily for all of us and for his original stakeholders, his successors have taken a different way. But I'll tell you, when I joined Ritz in 1988, I think that that stock – which was then traded on the American Exchange. I think it's now traded on New York. New York, pardon me. Yes, I think that that stock had returned cumulatively something like twenty-five percent a year to its initial investors over twenty-five years. I mean, it wasn't. This wasn't a flash in the pan. Yep. So it was a complete change in circumstance and culture and perspective and opportunity when I joined Lowe in 1994 because Lowe was always and is still. Uh, I bumped into some Lowe Enterprises uh, guys, uh, including a member of the Lowe family just six weeks or so ago out and around in the market. Those people are quality of life oriented. They believe really strongly in treating people in a way so that they'd be inclined, whoever they are, whatever they do, they'd be inclined to do business with you again and could become part of your network and your platform and your bundle of resources in every way. and. Pablo himself and all the people close to him were very strongly focused. Always. How did, you find, that oppor- how did you find that opportunity, Mike? When I was at RIT, I bought. I bought. I acted as the acquisitions officer for RIT for a shopping center called Montgomery Village Shopping Center, which yes. had been redeveloped in Montgomery Village by Lowe. And Lowe was at that time in the process of beginning its investment management business. When I bought that property, which would later, in later years, that property would have been capitalized probably by one of Lowe's uh Pension fund separate accounts. That particular property was capitalized by a venture between Lowe and an institutional investor. I became acquainted then with people who were fixtures of my life at Lowe for for many years. Mark Dubick had personally managed that redevelopment in conjunction with the Lowe Enterprises shareholder in this metropolitan region, Jim DeFrancia, who is really a land development guy, but a prince of a gentleman and a person. And um, Ted Leary, to whom Mark introduced me not that long after that transaction, founded for and with Bob Lowe. Lowe's investment management business. And so I was introduced to TED, and I was initially hired by Lowe to be its acquisitions officer for Lowe Enterprises Investment Management, which was a Los Angeles-based entity. And I worked in collaboration with people here who were employed by different affiliates who were in the operating parts of the business.
0: Okay. So you were in that investment management, you were the only investment management person on the East Coast then for them at
1: that time? I I was. And I I don't recall, John, how long it was that it remained the case that I was employed by Low Enterprises Investment Management. But at some point, Dubik and I became part of the same... Affiliate of Low, which for a long time was called uh, Low Enterprises Mid Atlantic. Our business was never a Mid Atlantic business, it was pretty much a Metro DC mm-hmm. business. And then in later years, that became Low Enterprises Real Estate East. And in the very later years of my time with Lowe, that affiliate here in Metro DC became rolled up into and part of a national group that included our similar offices in Seattle and Los Angeles and Denver. And it really became a national profit center with regional operating groups. Okay. The point that I wanted to emphasize as I started to describe that transition is that the change in my circumstances based on the change from writ to low could not have been more profound or more opportune as evidenced by the fact that I Ran that regional office here and was affiliated with Low Enterprises for almost 20 years. It was a very wonderful company to be part of for a very
0: extended period of time. Let's go move towards some of the more interesting projects that you worked on. Uh, You were originally in acquisitions there and then kind of evolved into becoming more of the, the the development business. How did that happen and yeah, it, why that transition?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it, it's at the heart of a, a lot of opportune stuff. So we started, as I said, on behalf of Low Enterprises Investment Management in 1994 to look for investment properties for our pension fund separate account clients, of whom at that time, there were, I don't know, two or three, or maybe there were five. Uh, But it was a small handful of very large separate account clients. And I use the word clients very purposefully because Lowe was a service provider through an investment management business model in which we did not make a co-investment. So we were paid incentive fees, but none of those uh, incentive fees technically constituted promotes. Uh, But the very first property that we acquired for Pennsylvania State Employees Retirement System was the vacant Fairmont building in Bethesda at the corner of Old Georgetown Road and Fairmont Avenue which had been moved out of by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission up into um, Sonny Abramson's build to suit for them in White Flint, leaving a local partnership with a vacant building that was definitely one of the ugliest buildings in North America. And uh, the good news is it was two-tenths of a mile from the Bethesda Metro, at a time, 1994, when I and many local practitioners had come to understand the power of metro proximity. But there were many practitioners around the country, certainly including my then associates and later partners in Los Angeles, who did not fully appreciate the trends towards Metro served their urbanization, which had served me so well for so long. And so we acquired this 120,000 square foot vacant office building with slabs, at slab to slab dimensions of eight foot six inches with 10,000 square foot floor plates. With stand alongside structured parking. So there's no way this building is ever going to be a class A building. There's no way it's even going to be a very top of the class B. It's got 10,000 square foot floor plates. And on a good day, the finished ceilings are eight feet. So what can it be? It can be a first class, gut rehabbed, renovated building two-tenths of a mile from the Bethesda Metro with 10,000-square-foot floor plates, which means that you could give a 10,000-square-foot tenant their own floor. And with the help of uh, Mike Hickok and his team from what was then called Hickok Warner, and with the help of Jim Davis and his team from Davis Construction, we formulated a plan in conjunction with my own construction management executives who at that time were in Los Angeles. We didn't have any construction management resources on the ground here in Metro DC at all. I was working out of Sterling. Uh, our office was in Sterling. You know, I'd invite people out for lunch and they'd say, how about a tank of gas instead? <laughs> it was, it was a slap out to our office. Yes. I know. So, you know, to show my associates from Los Angeles, this building, I had to schlep out to Dulles Airport, pick them up, get them in a station wagon, and drive them around and take them up into the top of this vacant office building with eight foot six slabs and say, we're going to gut rehab this building in 1995. We were starting to come out of the doldrums, but the markets were still slow. so. We gut rehabbed this building, and although the structure was there, it was really a development project. Mm-hmm. And we hired, uh, Steve Conley was the investment sales broker, and we hired his associates at then Kerry Winston, uh, Keith Forey, and um, Phil McCarthy, who leased the building for us, and we put a brew pub in the ground uh, floor for which we made some architectural room by removing portions of the slab. And the building looked great, and it leased up very nicely, and we sold it the minute that it leased, and we made a lot of money for our pension fund clients. So even though it wasn't a vertical new build, it really was a spec development project. We didn't put any debt on that building. We did it all in cash. And we made a lot of money for our partner and through the incentive fees for our own profit center and, and our partners in Los Angeles. So bam, we were in the development business. So the next project we bought was a vacant office building in Tyson's, which we gut rehabbed. Moved our own offices into that just as soon as we could that building was probably i don't know maybe it was eighteen million dollars ending gross investment and the next building we bought was the Airwright Center, which was seven hundred and twenty five thousand square feet of class C plus office space two tenths of a mile on the other side from the Bethesda metro and we bought that for a Washington state-based pension fund. And we didn't redevelop that building in its entirety. We did surgical redevelopments of parts of it, which were now configured and had been very unhappily and visibly vacant for a long time. Did, did you buy that from the isinger Kilbane families at the time? Well, uh, the isinger Kilbane families wished we had bought it from them, but we bought it from New York Life, which had taken it back from
0: them. Ah, the foreclosure. Okay.
1: Huh. Okay. New York Life had foreclosed... Uh, He bought it from New York Life. But it goes back to the point that I made uh, a bit ago, John. That building was on the market uh, by Jones Lang Wooten. That thing was broadly marketed. It was a $100 million deal at a time when people were starting to talk about the hockey stick. They were saying, if you can buy any decent property, buy it. There were people in the market with capital who wanted to make acquisitions like that. And so we had to compete. And we took uh, two or three bites of that apple before we made our final offer, which prevailed. So we had a plan and we had confidence based on a lot of uh, experience in the submarket and a lot of really good homework. We had confidence that that building. Once surgically revised, surgically redeveloped, we had confidence that it would compete very well. And in fact, it did. And so for our public employee retirement system, which bought that building for $105 million in cash in 19. 19- I think we closed on that in... Now, that complex, that was basically three
0: office buildings. It was three
1: office buildings, each each one stranger and more anomalous than the next. Uh, (laughs) And we paid about $105 million in cash for that, never put a penny of debt on it. And we put about 10... Maybe $15 million of CapEx in that building. And we sold it five years later for, I don't know, $160 million. So we produced something like a 15% unleveraged IRR on $115 million investment. When you do that, you're making a lot of money yes. for your clients yes, and you're making a lot of money for your affiliated investment management company. Mm-hmm. So we were off to a great start and we continued to buy uh, properties which ranged from gut rehabs to heavy duty value add and we got into the real development business when our partners in Los Angeles made a venture with an institutional investor which wanted to develop and own office buildings in prime submarkets around the United States and so with that capital available we Talked to friends in the market about a transaction profile that was new for us. And with a combination of old friends and new friends, we identified the project at 601 New Jersey. We did that with what was by then, I think, called Hickok, Warner, Fox, and with Davis Construction. And that property was brought to us. By a wonderful guy with whom I've done a bunch of business since, Jim Alexander, represented Low Enterprises as a buyer broker. And because we did not have vertical new build development experience under the roof, we hired Jim on an incentivized fee basis to serve as our development manager. And that project was the way that I acquired the company's support to recruit and hire a a construction management executive. And I hired Mark Muller to do that project with us in 1999. And last time I looked, he is still the senior most construction management executive at Low Enterprises' regional business here in Washington,
0: is that was that a ground-up project? That was a land a site buy, by or was that a, re- retro, a retro? That, that was
1: a hundred percent ground-up. That was owned by Sydney Greenfield, and Sydney had his office in a building on site. That was surrounded literally by razor wire because at uh, New Jersey and Each Streets in 1998, there were guys hanging out on the street in what is now the heart of Capitol Hill, drinking beer all night long. Yeah. And um, so that was a, we raised those buildings and built a new building and leased it uh, before it delivered. We developed it speculatively, but we did lease it before it delivered to the um, uh, Federal Trade Commission. And um, Lou Christopher, then of Cushman Realty, uh, represented us in the pursuit of that lease. And it's a great story, uh, or at least I think it's a great story. So I'm going to tell it to you, and you decide if it is. When that building was built, physically built, but before the certificate of occupancy had delivered when a significant percentage of the interior fit up for this full building user had already been put in place pursuant to this fully executed GSA lease. Before that building got its certificate of occupancy, it was discovered that the mortar joints in this all brick building were defective. All of the mortar joints in this all brick building were defective, which meant that the building needed to be swung from the top and scaffolded from the bottom. And every mortar joint in that building needed to be raked and redone. Oh, my God. And before we knew what it was that had occurred, because none of the usual suspects that we forensically explored turned out to be the cause of this, Jim Davis, Davis Construction was the contractor, Jim Davis said, I don't know how we're going to get paid for it and I don't know whose fault it is, but I know it's not the owner's fault. We're going to swing and stage that building and we're going to rake those joints and we're going to replace that mortar for you. And they did that to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars of work And it was later determined, it was much later determined that what had been the cause of it was that the cement, not the mortar, which is mixed on site, but the cement, which is manufactured remotely and put into cement bags, which are inspected and et cetera, that cement was chemically defective. There had been some batches of cement at this plant, which is in some godforsaken place in northern Maine or something. And the only cost to the owner was 25% of the testing studies as required to determine the problem. So couple of dozen thousand dollars. And if Jim Davis and Davis Construction had not done that, I think that that project and my profit center's future and my life would (laughs) literally have been different because we would have defaulted on the GSA lease and Mm -hmm. we would have had what's known as a mess. But because a good builder, who's a good company, who's a good guy, did the right thing. And so when I think of Frank Kahn on the one hand, and I think of the way this market has treated me and the kinds of people I've encountered on the other hand, it's as good a story as I can tell about That's great. how working with really good people has served me and my partners and stakeholders really well. So After that, we then, because we were driving up and down uh, New York Avenue on the way to and from that hole in the ground and that building under development, we became acquainted. And I think all these stories sort of reinforce the notion that if you focus on good, big projects with good, nice people, good stuff happens to you. Phil Carr at that time ran an affiliate of uh, the car companies called Car Park, which was providing the parking for our Chevy Chase Pavilion complex, which we then owned for the same pension fund for which we'd redeveloped the Fairmont building. And Phil Carr knew that we were going up and down New York Avenue every day on the way to and from 601 New Jersey. And he approached us and he said, I think the convention center is going to need some parking. Why don't you venture with me and let's pursue the wax museum site at 5th and K? And that was while 601 New Jersey was still under construction. And one can easily remember when 601 New Jersey delivered because I was at a project meeting in the bowels of 601 New Jersey on 9 Mm-hmm. But you never forget that. So 601 New Jersey delivered not long after 9-11. So that means that was 2001. So five years later, two public-private partnership procurements later, we began the construction. And actually, we closed on our financing, I'm pretty sure, in late 05. And we started construction of what? became known as and is still known to the market as City Vista in 06, and we delivered that product in the heart of the bust from 07. But it's a great story, again, because that property and that project, thanks to the contributions of a lot of smart, thoughtful, really attentive people, including our own staff led by uh, Mark Dubick, including uh, Bazuto, who was leasing up the apartments for us. And um, I'm pretty sure that McWilliams Ballard sold the condos for us. And of course, our partners at CIM. A lot of decisions were made, which resulted, first of all, we had a the Safeway store under the roof, which really made the address. And a lot of the apartments and the condos were significantly smaller than what had previously been marketed.
0: So, Mike, th- this was the first residential, predominantly residential, mixed-use project that you were involved with.
1: Well, it was the first one that we built, but going right. back to air rights – One of the things that we underwrote into the air rights deal and executed during the time that we owned that property is that we projected and then delivered the entitlements for a residential component built essentially where the hotel is now on Waverly Street. Right which we projected somewhat more nearly to be on top of rather than cut into the parking. But Mm -hmm. conceptually, in that location, we projected and underwrote the delivery of something like 120,000 square feet of residential. So our investment partner there, that employee retirement system, did not want to execute on that but that value was in place. So in the minds of many of the stakeholders whose support we needed to prosecute City Vista, we had in fact already gotten into the residential business because we had executed on that. We read that right. We told the story accurately in a way that was Really, an important part of both the arithmetic and the market play, as we told it to our pension fund partner. So, that had to have been
0: a very difficult project to sell, though, because I remember when that was developed. like I mean, that's right, the, no, no, City Vista. Oh, when that, when that project was. The old convention center at that time had been just torn down, as I recall, and, and Heinz controlled that site. And it was just a big parking lot
1: there. Uh, the convention center was already the old very one. well under construction because the, con- the convention center was under construction... I think before we finished uh, 601 New Jersey, the convention center was a up. new one. Oh, I didn't realize it. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but I think that's so. And it was definitely more or less in place when we were under construction with City Vista. Okay. Because it turned out that the, the city didn't want any parking, but the city did have a bunch of other objectives that they wanted for that city-owned land. And it was a difficult, complicated, big project. but I'll tell you, John, and it and it of course took a lot of work to lease up the retail, yes, although the the Safeway was pre because it was an island it was an island there wasn't it was, it it, it was an island, and there were street walkers in a huge very active uh, location, just a, a block away. But I, I'll tell you that by the time that delivered, even though we were in the depths of that market, and here's the way I would describe how successful it was. Our investment partners at CIM, and that relationship was really run by Mark Dubik for us and Charlie Garner for CIM, Our partners at CIM invested very significantly standing along low enterprises in the pre-development pursuit costs of that project. So we're talking about designing a building and negotiating multiple public-private partnership leases and purchase arrangements with the district. And a lot of work and a lot of money. And they funded, CIM funded, in venture with low, but they funded a very significant percentage of those costs because they believed in the market and they believed in us and they believed in the play as an important opportunity for their business as well. And as a result of that, in consideration of that, CIM had a very significant pref, and it was a high enough hurdle that that project needed to really do very well before there would be any promotes for low enterprises. And I will tell you that although the promotes for enterprise for low were modest, there were promotes for low enterprises. prices. That was a profitable project. And so, of course, it took a lot of work, and it took a lot of time, and it took a lot of elbow grease, but that product was very well received by the market. The apartments rented, the condos sold, the retail leased. It was absorbed. And it was absorbed in a way that was... Way beyond what one would reasonably project for that point in the cycle. Because as we've said, the, the cycle was, it was a mess, but it, it reinforced for me all the things I've been uh, describing about good property with a differentiated, resolved, executable plan And that includes, and every project's different, but that includes having all the external resources required to do it.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Capital, but also the architect and the contractor and the leasing people and the condo sales people and the market research people. All those people, one by one by one, they play a really, really critical role in the success. I mean, that's a huge business. That was a... In, 19, in 2005, that was a $260 million project. good size project. So, you know, the fees that are provided to our business and all of the profits to the equity, obviously, those were big loans. That was... Yeah. Good project. Something like $140 million of Wachovia loans arranged by Tyler Blue and Patty Ernest, of Walker and Dunlop. And there's a lot of stuff over the dam and under the bridge to make that happen, but it absorbed very, very well. And then
0: Low Enterprises then ended up selling Low and CIM and upsetting the retail subsequently. To,
1: to Edens uh, and Avant. They were That's still right. called Edens and Avant. Right. And uh, we sold the um, apartments uh, to um, Gables and and we had hundreds of condominiums that needed to be sold right? separately.
0: I'm sure the returns on that deal once all the sales occurred were pretty strong when everything was said done there.
1: Well, we 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 hit that promote, and if it hadn't have been, you know, every project and every capital stack is different. If uh, the circumstances had been different and we needed less support from CIM in the Mm pre-development, then obviously the capital stack would have been different. But we did need that support, and they gave it to us, and they were appropriately compensated for it.
0: So then uh, the last project that Lowe I'd like to talk to you about is uh, the last large deal that I think that you did was the acquisition of the Washington Hilton and then the subsequent development of the apartment project next to it called the Hepburn. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that project.
1: Yeah, I I remember when we had that property under contract, we had uh, Adam Ducker from RCL Co., head up a team to do a market study for us. And I remember Adam came into our offices with our prospective investment partners who had by that time already been identified to be the Canyon Johnson Fund. And Adam said, this is one of the great development sites on the East Coast right now. And I thought then, and uh, in retrospect, he was obviously right. And so our pursuit of that project was made really in venture with the hospitality group in Lowe. And so it was really a collaboration among the capital team in Los Angeles, the hospitality team in Denver, and our operating and development team on the ground in Washington. So what year was this Mike when you acquired that property? I would guess that we acquired that property in 2009 or 10 or okay maybe it was 11. I'm not really sure. I left low in 13. We had long since closed. And long since done most of the base building renovations to the hotel. Mm-hmm. During our diligence period, we uh, hired Hani Hassan and his team at Bayer Blender Bell. We didn't know Hani and his team here in Washington really well, but we had been working on a very complicated mixed-use project. That did not get built in Stamford, Connecticut, with the New York based office of uh, Bayer Blender, Bell. And we had become well acquainted with the firm's capacities. And uh, we knew that Hani was best in class in a mixed use setting, particularly when charged with historic dimensions, which this project was, because. During the time that we had uh, the property under contract, it was landmarked. And uh, we got approvals from, as I recall, the BZA and the HPRB for the building that Hani designed that more or less was the HEPAR. There were some changes to the... Lower levels of that complex that were made by the time it delivered. But the fundamentals of the piece of real estate that we made were uh, arranged during the due diligence process uh, that our team ran before we closed on that with Canyon Johnson. So our profit center's focus was on that residential property. Uh, It was obviously a big and fabulous hotel. The issues that hit the hotel business as the 2007-2008 bust rippled through the hospitality business were very significant, but Lowe did eventually, uh, after I left, manage to Make an arrangement with our capital partners at Canyon Johnson to allow us, in venture, by that time no longer us, it was them. I was no longer associated with it. But the project that got built was the project uh, my team had envisioned. So we prevailed upon Canyon Johnson to sell the pad for what is now the Hepburn to a venture managed by low enterprises, knowing that it was going to be with a separate external capital partner. So those arrangements were made, and that building was built, and there was a long debate during the time uh, that it was coming uh, to market. And my, my recollection is that it continued Even after construction had begun, as to whether it was going to be condos or apartments. And once the capital arrangements were finalized with a partner interested in being a long term holder of apartments, the program was finalized as an apartment program. And talk about the proof being in the pudding. I mean, I do think the rents there are, if not the highest in the market, they're certainly. Right around the highest in the market, and what's really wonderful and remarkable, and this is the power of that location, but also of that fabulous building, is that units both at the at both ends of the bookend, the very large units and the smaller units, are both renting for uh, market leading uh, rents. And the ones for the larger units, because the units are so large, I think are not only the highest dollars per square foot, but may maybe the largest chunk rents in the metro. It's got... I've uh, seen them. They're beautiful. Beautiful
0: it's project. A,
1: it's a fabulous setting. Beautiful project. Uh, it's a beautifully conceived and executed project. And... Uh, A wonderful story for everyone associated with it. So then uh, you decided uh, at some point that you
0: wanted to transition into a new enterprise. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that.
1: One of the things I focused on in my later years at Lowe was positioning our profit center here in Metro DC to have access to if not actually programmatic, at least reliably available capital. Because by that time, we did not have the same kind of access to the separate account pension fund capital that we'd had uh, for many years. And collaborating with our partners in Los Angeles, to capitalize development ventures here in many cases was complicated and not necessarily reliable. So we formulated a number of differentiated investment and operating strategies that we thought could be the basis for programmatic capital and one of those uh, because it really was a business objective it was a objective on behalf of the operating units uh, one of so so it could have been any of a number of investment strategies that could have led to programmatic capital and for instance one of the things that we explored was a programmatic approach to acquiring mixed use Rehab projects like Air Rights and Chevy Chase Pavilion. Uh, we'd done any number of projects that weren't quite as large as those, but we had very deep credentials doing mixed use value adding and repositioning, in some cases, leading to uh, new development opportunities, as could have been the case at the Air Rights Center. And uh, we, we explored that along with. Uh, What you're asking about, which uh, was the notion of providing furnished small unit rental apartments in ultra prime infill locations to urban and urbane business clients who wanted a residential program. And so they didn't. That particular profile doesn't want to be in a hotel, doesn't want to be in corporate housing, and doesn't want a a furnished unit in a conventional apartment building. What we formulated was a program to provide for that customer profile socially interactive shared living spaces so that you could have an entire community with nothing but single-occupant renters who would use the shared living spaces in a way that would be, by definition, different because they're all single-occupants. So no old people, no couples, no people with kids, just single-occupant people who uh, our research showed, in many cases, came to Washington from relatively far away on relatively short notice with uh, stays planned of indeterminate periods of time who really wanted a living environment suited to their business and personal lifestyle. So we formulated a plan for what uh, uh, we came to call urban suites. And I explored at low a number of projects that could have been responsive to that strategy. And in the process of exploring those projects, I explored prospective investment relationships. And one of those investment relationships turned out to be somebody who had the experience and the sensibility and the means to... Join me in leading uh, a program to execute that strategy uh, with the intention to build a portfolio and operating platform of scale that would render us uniquely equipped to attend to and to compete for that specific customer profile. And so, in venture with Frank Saul, I formed and served uh, for a handful of years as the president of a company called S.B. Urban, and S.B. Urban acquired in Metro D.C., in Washington D.C., three great properties and sites, one of which got developed and has delivered and is currently operating as the Ampere on DuPont Circle in the Uh, historic, adaptively reused Patterson Mansion right on uh, the circle. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think anybody in the market looking at this market space and this customer profile broadly defined would say that that project is the premier short-term furnished studio apartment community in Metro DC. And it's not only a wonderful project as it sits there on the street, but I think it remains a very opportune profile. And going back to your first question, what am I doing now? Certainly among the things I'm doing now is considering ways in which those prospective, programmatically capitalized, differentiated investment strategies can be prosecuted in a portfolio and platform setting really suited to doing it in an exceptional way. I'm talking to some prospective uh, partners specifically about urban suites. I'm talking to some prospective partners specifically about that other profile, about larger mixed-use placemaking. Opportunities, which in today's market, uh, given the dynamics uh, as between office and residential might very likely typically include some adaptive reuse from office to residential. And I think that those kinds of projects at either end of those bookends but I'm focusing now for a second on the larger mixed-use placemaking opportunity. Assets like that are always really difficult to acquire. There's no good time to acquire big mixed-use assets in ultra-prime locations. That said, I do think that right now could be A relatively opportune time to acquire assets of that profile, partly because of the issues that we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, the things that are happening with uh, COVID-19. But as I've said, if blip is not the right word, I certainly don't think secular changes in pricing can be counted on from those pressures. But I do think that more nearly secular pressures are being encountered by older office space that is not well positioned to be renovated into Class A space. Mm -hmm. I think... The pressures on that category of office space, if not fully secular, are certainly likely to be lasting pressures. And so the opportunity to take office that has for many years continued to generate the investments required to maintain it as let's say, B office, I think the pressures on those kinds of properties have been ratcheted up materially in the last three or five years due to the secular transitions away from uh, uses of office space requiring the same kinds of square footage that has historically been the case. So I think the office market inventory is likely to continue to have downward pressures on it. So I think that that could produce buying opportunities for assets with wonderful locations with secular pressures on them that produce pricing that supports an adaptive reuse redevelopment plan. And you I think, think that it,
0: the uh, office market uh, impact, not just from the last five years, but just from what's going on right now with this crisis and the institutionalization now of home office activity that heretofore has not, never, not happened before of, of this magnitude, such that you know, most people are now doing business in a uh, technology platform like you and I are doing right now as we're doing our interview.
1: Yeah. I mean, there has been, I think my perspective about that, John, would be is that there has been a pressure in that direction for a long time. The current exceptional circumstances are complementary to that pressure. They will exacerbate the difficulties faced by certain properties and certain categories of properties. And so when we look back on it uh, two months or two years or five years from now, will the trend lines at that time be due to the trend that's been underway for the last five or seven years? Years or will it be due to the trends that have been underway for the last five or seven weeks? Who knows? But it certainly strikes me that these kinds of infill settings on which I've been focused for so long and about which we've been talking in this conversation are going to continue to generate Attractive investment opportunities that can produce superior risk adjusted returns because of the continuing power of the fundamentals of these infill locations. And so one of the things we've often said and that I've often said about these large mixed use projects is that if you buy good property, At a manageable price, not expecting it to be a steal as Frank Kahn expected it to be, but expecting it to be a basis from which one can accretively make good uh, investments going forward. If you buy property like that, you're going to find buttons you can push on that are different than the ones you knew about. And underwrote. When you put a good team on a property like that, in a market like that, the things that you underwrote are going to be just the tip of the iceberg. There's going to be other stuff. So I don't think, speaking for myself, I don't think the opportunity has been or is to have a good crystal ball. I think the opportunity, speaking for myself, has been and is to have a multidisciplinary, well-resourced, agile view of the world that can be supported by resilient fundamentals that are likely to continue to prevail. That's the way I've looked at the world in making all these investments. And I'm expecting, generally speaking, that'll be the way I'll continue to look at it. Won't know, One won't know, in many cases, exactly how it's all going to work out. Right. And one doesn't need to in order to have confidence in an investment scenario.
0: It's going to be interesting to see... Uh you know, whether the densification trend that has occurred as a result of many of the thought processes that you've brought to the table will continue and that some people will say, you know, do I really need to commute into an urban mar- environment? Mm-hmm. You know, do I, why don't I just stay where I am out in the suburbs, much less lower cost? I don't need to go anywhere other than just to, to get my routine things that I need to get accomplished, I can meet over the internet. I don't have to physically meet as as often. So I don't really need to go to these high density markets and be exposed to the risks of that. So that might be a counter argument to what you were talking about a little bit.
1: Yeah, I I, I think that's fine. I, I don't need, I don't feel that I need to demonstrate that those things are not true in order to have confidence based on a long view of markets and history that the kinds of market spaces and customer profiles and building topologies and et cetera, et cetera, that I have prioritized are going to remain fertile ground. Mm-hmm. I think it's completely possible that the things that you're describing will turn out to be true in a freshly energized way, but I don't think that that detracts from the power of the kinds of settings that we've talked about. You know, we talked about 9-11. If you remember not that long after 9-11, people were loath to get on airplanes. there was a concern that the resort business and the corporate conference business Mm -hmm. and the business traveler profile were just going to go away. And that obviously did not happen because there was a return, which doesn't mean that there wasn't an increase In the number of people who, in response to those things, leveraged by technological developments, did business in some certain ways. Yep. Now, I do think, uh, and I don't want to suggest, let me, I don't know whether to put this positively or negatively, I don't think it's true that secular changes never happen. And I don't mean to be saying that because, for instance, I do think that secular changes have happened in the retail business. No question about that. And I don't think one, one has to be a particularly sophisticated, in the middle of it, observer of that world to know or to acknowledge that there has been secular change. People are not going to make the same kinds of shopping trips going forward as they have. However, I don't think that that means that sophisticated, capable, well-resourced practitioners in the retail space are not going to be able to ply their trade and make money. I think they are. And I think it's the change in all these things that's really exciting. Listen, you think about a shopping center, talk about building typology. The building typology that we know today as the food store anchored suburban shopping center did not exist 75 years ago. Mm-hmm. The building typology that we know as A shopping mall did not exist 75 years ago. So during the second half of the 20th century, lots of things happened that people thought were completely secular evolutions of the city. People thought, some people thought, obviously not everybody thought, but some people thought that the city was dead. So I don't believe that the city is dead by any means, and I don't think there's going to be a preponderance of view that it is dead, but there's certainly some fortunes going to be made. By people who respond to these pressures that you're talking about in a new way. And I'll leave you with one thought because I think it's a really great example of how rich the dialogue about these things needs to be. You know, I've been for several years on the advisory board of Uh, Chris Leinberger's real estate uh, program at George Washington, Mm -hmm. the Center for Real Estate and Urban Analytics. And Chris personally is a person to whom I was introduced by Adam Ducker at RCL Co. When Adam, who performed that market study that I described uh, for what became the Hepburn, And I were talking, as we did over an extended period of time, about the strategy that became urban suites. And I benefited extensively from the perspective of Adam and people like him, who were really well-informed, with nuance beyond my own understandings, about The way urban infill markets were behaving and were likely to behave. And Chris, as I think you know, has for an extended period of time been a student of and an advocate of density. And Chris has benefited many stakeholders by articulating what the value is, what the incremental value is of real estate in dense and richly infrastructured settings. And that said, Chris will tell you that only about 2% of the land mass of most of the great metros is filled with truly dense development. Mm-hmm. So, if you have only 2% of the landmass of Washington and of New York and Boston considered as an economic, as a regional economic organism, if you only have 2% of it that is developed with truly dense urban infrastructure, doesn't that produce an enormous opportunity on a price-adjusted basis to replicate elsewhere some of the advantages of those really dense locations that are either too expensive or that pose certain issues, including these issues that we're talking about Related to people staying self and safe and healthy today, mm-hmm. the answer is of course it does. Mm-hmm. Somebody is going to respond to that imbalance in a really productive, opportune, accretive, profitable way. And what I think I'm saying to you is that, given the amount of time that I've spent doing business in that. 2% of the landmass, I think it's more likely that I personally have uh, th- the best contributions to make in those settings, but that doesn't mean that the other things aren't really true. They are. Mm-hmm. So is this a great country or what? There's a lot of great markets, yep. a lot of great opportunities, mm-hmm. a lot of wonderful uh, drivers of demand and the value. Yep. And if there's one thought I would leave you with, because I think we're probably both running out of time. If there's one thought I would leave you with, um, particularly with regard to this last part of the discussion, but it also relates to some of the questions you asked earlier and the observations that, I made going back to my father flying missions over Normandy in 44. I think that all of these things that we're talking about are things for us to be grateful about. I think we have so much opportunity and so much opportunity to contribute. And it's all so interesting. It's just... Hard to fit into a lifetime, all the things that one wants to do. And I'm just thrilled to have had the opportunity to associate myself with as many wonderful projects and people and organizations and trends as I have. And I'm uh, just thinking about all the things that remain to be done and that it's just a very very exciting thing
0: let me let me ask a few uh, more uh, lifetime sharing ideas for the listeners a little bit so so what are your life priorities among family work and giving back mike i mean how do you how do you view that from your perspective
1: my perspective on that john is going back to what i just said with with gratitude as the driver of the way I treat situations and people. I like to think and I hope that the list of people with whom I've productively and helpfully shared these perspectives that I've shared today, I like to think that it's a long list. And I've tried hard in every situation to treat all the people around me the way I'd want to be treated myself. And I think every day is an opportunity to give back by doing unto others the things that you'd want done unto yourself. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's an enormously valuable guideline, the the golden rule with friends and with family and with associates and with stakeholders.
0: Well, I was going to ask you my final two questions that I usually ask most of my guests, but I think you might've just answered it. And those questions are, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? And it sounds like what you just said about the golden rule
1: is what you would say. So. Abs- absolutely. I, I, I think that the relatively few times in my career when I have thought afterwards that I have perhaps not been as thoughtful and considerate and uh, collegially informative or whatever the particular benchmark of failure is that one can. Construed The relatively few times when I have failed to do those things ha- have resonated with me and lasted with me for a long time. And more importantly, that means that the many times when I have conducted myself in a way that I've been proud of and that I think has been helpful to others, those have resonated too. And I obviously don't know about uh, each and every perception that each and every person has. But, you know, going back to Philadelphia, I had a sixth grade teacher named Miss Ronaghan. And uh, I I don't know that her great aphorism for me is more valuable than when Jersey Zoltan told me (laughs) to remember that all you need to do is go from the general to the particular and the particular to the general. But Ms. Ronahan said, do the right thing because it's right. And what a wonderful thing for a 12-year-old kid to be exposed to. That's great. I, I don't remember how many times she said it, but it wasn't 2 or 12 or 27. She said it often enough. So over the distance of all these years, I remember her saying it as if it were yesterday. And I certainly think that it's as valuable, not just aphorism, but a view of life as any I've encountered. And I feel lucky to have learned that from her at that time. It was a good time to learn that.
0: So Mike, on that note, Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was uh, a wide-ranging discussion. It's my
1: pleasure, indeed. I really
0: appreciated it.
1: I- I'm, uh, I'm uh, very pleased to have the opportunity. I hope I've been responsive to the agenda. And it's a personal pleasure, John, and thanks an awful lot. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you again. Take okay. care. Have a good day.